We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're speaking with some built environment professionals about how travelling, working and researching overseas has affected the work that they're doing in Australia. Our guest in this episode is architectural educator and co-founder of Archimarathon, Kevin Huey. Kevin has organised architectural tours all around the world for two decades, and as an educator and architecture lover, he knows that to truly understand and appreciate architecture, people have to go and visit buildings in the flesh. Kevin shares how construction becomes less cryptic when visiting buildings in person, how much planning and preparation goes into an Archimarathon tour, and how Kevin has opened a studio next to Austin Maynard Architects in Melbourne, where students can truly experience how architecture takes place in a working architecture office. Let's jump in. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining me today on the Hearing Architecture Podcast. How are you going? Good. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, no worries at all. So, Kevin, you've you've started a, a company called Archie Marathon. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background in the architecture profession? And then we'll get stuck into what led you to create this wonderful company, Archie Marathon. So where did it all begin in your in your career? I guess I started because I had a very good teacher. I had really good teachers, but most notably Tom Wheeler in Sydney University when I studied. First of all, just a very great, clear communicator, but also he took us to Melbourne, he took us to Europe to see buildings and explaining buildings. I remember even just first year, first semester, first weeks, we had a three-hour lecture on wrong shop. You know, that's something that we actually don't hear much of. Wow. Ex- explaining seminal buildings clearly uh, to students. So, yeah, I realized there's a missing gap in that aspect of education, but also the social engineering aspect of education. I just felt like that. I don't know, just having switched university, I felt like the, the new university I went to in Melbourne treated students like kindergarten students. So there wasn't much conversation with tutors afterwards. Students were mortified to, to have to speak to a tutor afterwards. And I realized that is so important, you know, just go to the pub afterwards and have a conversation. And traveling allowed also that kind of intimacy that you, you, you get to do it. So yeah, the social engineering aspect of teaching was pretty much what got me into teaching in the first place. Yeah, fantastic. So it sounds like the way that Tone taught, there was a, a very physical aspect to it, you know, actually looking at some of these buildings in detail uh, and talking through what people were seeing. Was that a, yes, was that a big part of definitely. it? definitely. You know, he had uh, quite an encyclopedic knowledge of buildings, but also, you know, he's, he's been to most of them and he, he can talk about them with passion. So I think that's quite an important aspect to, you know, as a student, they're lectures, but then it's just a bunch of information. If, if there's no passion in it, I think students won't pick up as much. But, you know, if it's picked up a few key points and sucking in energy from someone, that's a bonus. So, yeah, great. So great to have that level of energy and passion. And I think, I think in education as well now, we're seeing more and more people because of social media. I think that people 
don't know these projects and you know everyone i know have, have taught just expected you know others should have taught these buildings but no one really have taught seminal buildings properly as they used to and people don't go on the grand tour anymore as much and so yeah i think we need to recalibrate somehow just to teach some of these uh, important buildings that you go and visit but also just someone explain it to you mm, absolutely because i guess that's that's one of the things is that with social media we're getting a little bit addicted maybe to the power of the image uh, or the video and the actual experience of physically being present within seminal buildings of architecture has a whole other dimension to yes, it. Yes, you well. always get the students who, or even graduates, <laughs> say, oh, I, I know of that building from image, but I don't know nothing about it. You know, they know, I've, I've had a, come across a graduate of architecture in Spain from America, from a, you know, quite a famous architecture school, let's not name them. She said she wanted to see some Mies in Barcelona. I said, okay, yeah. And she said she wanted to see this house. It's made out of marble. And I went, did you mean the Barcelona Pavilion? And then she said, I don't know. That was, that's quite alarming, I think, you know, a graduate of architecture not knowing Barcelona Pavilion. So, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's the student's fault. I think it is, there's a general thing in the air, like, you know, in, the, in, in education at the moment that sort of a lot of these things are not taught, I guess. And it's very hard to talk about architecture in, in the studio without, you know, actually going, even just walking down the street, just walk down the street and just talk about buildings. That's so hard to do now at university. You have to assign all these OHS forms and things to, to, you know, to do that. You only learn architecture from architecture. And that, that conversation, I think, it's, it's a bit lost at the moment. Yeah. And, and was there, I guess, a side of what you were learning from Tone that you've now taken on uh, in your own process that does talk through that kind of buildability of what you're seeing? So that then there's also a conversation around, you know, what element went first, being able to, to visibly see maybe a primary or secondary structure and, and, and all of that side of what your students are looking at in graduates? So. But, you know, he also, also taught us construction as well, you know, just to see these, these elements. But, you know, it's, it's just like teaching construction. When you go to site, it all makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're trying to learn on paper, it's like it's cryptic as hell. I, I didn't understand it until I, you know, went to site and go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, that's how stud frame works. Now I fully get it. Yeah, absolutely. So does this, is this where your the motto of, of Archie Marathon came from? Do you want to share the motto of the businesses and, and where that has come from? Yes, the motto is uh, learn to see architecture and see to learn architecture. So I think everyone can look, not everyone can see. And I think even now more so than ever with Instagram, yeah, you can flick through, you can see an image, but they're not really looking and understanding the projects. And I think it does need someone at some point to kind of show you the ropes of how do you actually digest and understand a building. And that's why I, I guess also Andrew and I, Andrew Maynard and myself started making YouTube videos to try to break down designs and talk about it in design terms. Mm. Is there a project that you take people to that you think is a good exemplar that you've been able to use almost like a, you know, a teaching tool so that then you can talk through some of the elements so that people can start to learn how to see architecture? I think a lot of it really also depends on the, the audience, like, if I'm taking people from Melbourne, it's very different. Just going, even just going to Sydney, there's a legibility to the work in Sydney. 
in the tectonics, you can see the structure, you can see the expression of structure, which we don't see much in Melbourne. Whereas I guess taking Melbourne people or camper people you know, to Melbourne, there's a very different dialogue about what, what Melbourne is, you know, Melbourne architecture is tend to be doing is a lot more skin orientated, um, not more philosophy and rhetoric in architecture that is, that is talked about built pieces of theory in some ways. I think it really depends on the, I think it really depends on the audience in that, that answer. So there's, there's no one, one size fit all, because I, I do ask where people come from. So I have a bit of context to work with. Yeah. Well, I think it is often very interesting when you go to, to some of these buildings in person and the image of of certain buildings, you know, for me, I know when I went to the Sydney Opera House, I think my perception of the building was that it was kind of this beautiful, light, curvaceous building. And then I went there and I actually really got the mass and the heaviness <laughs> of this building when you get to go there and, and see those sort of massive concrete elements. Then I started to get a whole different appreciation of that. Is there Are there other buildings like that that you've found when you've gone there with your with the people who do the, uh, the Archie Marathons, that they sort of have that sort of breakthrough moment? You know, like the Opera House, it's, it's, a, it's a different case. Like we, we actually ask students to rate um, daily what are the top fives. And it becomes a conversation about why, why they have, the, why they rank certain things as one of the, the top fives. And usually the Opera House is on the separate league. We don't count the Opera House because it is a very different setting. <laughs> mm. You know, the Opera House, I, I was actually having conversation. I, I never really thought of it that way. You know, there is no way in the world that has such a unique design, such a unique setting. And I, I can't recall anything in the world that has that presence. You know, you can have a beautiful design sitting in somewhere, but not that setting in Sydney. I think that's, that's just a, that's something else. And there's such gravitas to the to the building, literally, pun intended. The the heaviness about the, the the structure when you get up close and seeing that legibility there. I think there are buildings, and depending on the tours, one of the favourites seems to be Raphael Meneo's, the National Roman Art Museum in Merida, in Spain. There's a easily to brush it off as potentially postmodern with the arches, but then they start to see the expressions of heavy and light and the way that the spaces are defined by just the walkways and how it chops up a big space into smaller rooms and the light quality and the so yeah i think i think that seems to be one that people kind of start to click and understand ah section ah materiality but you know there there are many really It's, it's different for everyone yeah and i think that's um that's a really good point that until you go to some of these places where you get to experience them with more parts of your body than just your eyes, um, you start to really almost feel the lightness uh, as in the, the actual visible light versus the shadow or the darkness. And you can start to appreciate that on, on another kind of level. Yeah, we just did a TikTok. Now we're doing short form videos. We just did a TikTok about food and architecture. And yeah, it is very much, you know, you can study a cookbook all you like and look at pictures, but in it of the day, you need to go and as a chef, you need to go and eat. You need to go and try different places and different different cuisines just to see what, what happens when you put certain things together a certain way. For myself, the building that, that made me understand architecture travel and the value of it was La Tourette by Le Corbusier. 
Now I remember seeing I remember seeing the pictures of it, these crummy black and white photos through first year to third year at Sydney Uni, and I just got oh god, that looks so depressing. <laughs> that reminds me of coming from Hong Kong. It looks like some really depressing school, brutalist school. I didn't really understand what what it has, what quality. And then of course going to it in real life and learning about it. It's uh, it's out of this world. And what what was the thing that struck you when you got there? I think there's the tactility, the scale, the you know it, it's not highly polished building. If you know that the concept are very clear and there's always about you know the kabuzi is always about setting up rules and then he'll break the rules just to show you haha i can um and there's there's a lot of very clever use of things there's a clever use of structure and the way that it versus enclosure you can see the way that he framed uh, when you walk in the door to the refectory there's a frame view across the just a smaller valley and then you got a diagonal view framed to a distant and that has to that has a zanaka's uh, rhythmic facade one side and then you look back and then you've got the ordered Andrian facade looking back into the orderly aspect of the monastery so there's a lot of play of lessons and it's one of those buildings that you keep going back to and then you find new things and you go oh my god I didn't see that but yeah that that was the turning point for me I think just to realize there's a lot more to architecture than just pretty pictures yeah and it was it also uh yeah, whether you think you like it or not. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that's always a lovely thing as well. Is when you get to certain buildings, you might have seen it in an image, and it might not be at the top of your priority list. And someone else takes you there, and all of a sudden, when you're in the space, you start to recognise elements that make it really exciting, and you start to come around, and it changes your your opinion about the buildings. I can imagine, you know, visiting that church, the massiveness of it as well. Is a bit hard to to fully comprehend from from the images. Yes, and the acoustics. Mm. What are the acoustics like in that space? Oh, it's wonderful. You can it's you know like a gothic church. I guess the the echo is is quite amazing. The reverberation, and just being Tone Wheeler, he planned it so that we were there on a Sunday. So we actually saw the town people come up and. We were there for church service, so that that was quite nice to yeah, experience that. That's amazing because I think I've only ever seen photos of that building when it's empty. I don't think I've ever seen people yeah. in there in there or in using that building for its intended use. I've never seen that, so that that must have been re- very special. Yeah, and I guess that's part of uh, learning from Tony Wheeler's planning in some ways to have that aspect to think okay i need to time it at that point so i get that experience yeah so so what goes into the planning of these amazing tours that you that you take people on? i mean they're really they're not just a a simple you know holiday it's it's definitely a full education and proper experience hardcore experience of architecture so so what goes into the planning of it that's why andrew called it archie marathon <laughs> That's right. It's not just an archy wander. It's an archy marathon. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about what, what goes into this. Well, again, it goes into when I was backpacking, you know, just going trekking across the country in Spain and eventually arriving at a at the Avaro Caesar Galician Arts Museum at Santiago de Compostela, and then I realised it was shut. It was a Monday. It's like, no. Uh, that's when I realised I need to plan things ahead so that it doesn't happen again. So many times just to go somewhere and then realize it's shut, it's just uh, disheartening. So yes, first of all, finding out all the information, 
but also uh, working out what am I after? I mean, even just planning what, what to go see. Because if you look at any architecture guidebooks, there's so many things to see. They would put anything, everything there, and there's only so much time you have. I look for things. I, I look at even you know Art Daily and all those things. I look at books, whatever I can find, and speak to people. And I and I think to myself, what can I learn from it? What is what is unique about it? Because I think that's a beauty of contemporary architecture travel or modern architecture travel, as opposed to seeing every single church under the Tuscan sun. You know, it is a typology, and you tend to get repetitive. Whereas I think contemporary and modern work, they are always some kind of unique response. And that's what makes it interesting. It's unpredictable in some ways. So yeah, I, I look for what lessons am I going to get? Is it am I going to cross town to see this, or is, am I going to cross the world to see this? If it's just a fancy facade, it's like, is it worth all that effort to see that? If it if we happen to walk past it, fine. But is it worth spending a whole day to trying to get there to see it? So yeah, there's definitely a priority of thinking what kind of experience am I going to get. That's part of the, the planning of choosing a list and also just the research, just knowing what is available and trying to find out where they are. That's the hard bit as well, exactly where they are. How do you get there? And the other aspect is, again, part of that lesson and the stories is, okay, uh, what kind of light condition I want to see them in. So in all my days and all my planning, I actually write down sunrise and sunset times. So I know I can plan, okay, I want to see this building at dusk. So... I can see it in daylight and I have enough time for it to turn into nighttime as well to see it. Or that, you know, yeah, daylight's very important in Scandinavia. If it's if you want to see something in wintertime, but you want to see it in daylight, you only got like three, four <laughs> hours of time. So you're going to make sure that is the case where light is important. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's some of the planning. So yeah, there's also seasons as well. So, for example, I, I go to the China tour, for example, in Beijing and the north. We go in wintertime because, yes, it does get hot in Beijing, but I think it's important to feel the cold in the north so you understand also the food, the food culture, and then how do they, you know, these houses traditionally are freaking cold so that they have braziers and things, and, and they have the, the kung, which is a heated platform traditionally, so this is about keeping warm. So you understand how architecture plays a role in, in that, and in culture and food all part of the picture of how certain culture works. And Spain and Portugal will actually do the summertime. Yes, Spain gets cold as well, but just seeing siesta and understanding the material choices and the food and the culture, just going to, you just need to cool down and have a drink. Um, that's all part of the architecture. It's shading, it's important. Mm. And I think that's that's also a really an overlooked thing by a lot of people that, when you're going to do an intensive architecture tour, that there are a lot of things that go into the design and consideration of buildings and, and how they're used. So the idea of just going somewhere in summer because you're a bit of a fan of summer, it's going to have other conditions applied to it because of that time of year. Yeah. So, and I mean, if you're also moving that much between building to building, that's got to be quite intense if you were going to go in the summer as well. You've got to plan around how to keep everyone comfortable. Mm. Like when you're going to Finland, you know, that's a tricky one, you know, because every season is so uniquely different. Uh, summertime, of course, you've got the long summer sun. Uh, you've got beautiful greenery in the lakes. And that's quite, it's quite beautiful and it is unique. Autumn, it's got this amazing golden colours. 
and then dark, not wet and not great, but you've got this amazing color. Then you've got winter, which is very important in understanding Finland as well because of the snow and the whiteness of it all. So uh, yeah, in some countries, you know, that there is no right time. You maybe go go different times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then when it comes to making sure that, that the information that you're getting is the right the right information, I mean, you must be in contact. You must find some people who who are amazing feet on the ground in terms of you know knowing what these buildings are like at different times of year, knowing what the access is like, knowing what activities go on to make sure that the buildings are activated. Have you come across some some pretty interesting characters on along the way who've opened doors for you uh, into these amazing places? Yeah, having talked with a bunch of colleagues from Spain that helped, but also social media has been pretty amazing uh, just to meet people from different parts of the world just through social media because they just great feed and you just end up talking to them. But also, yeah, that some of them are able to source drawings for me. That's one thing, again, I learned from Tom Wheeler is he had this immaculate document that each building at least will have a sheet of paper and it would have plans and section or diagram or something that would explain it because there's no point just going to building and look at it. Sometimes you should just wish you have a plan to see it. And that's something I do with all my tours to make sure that the participants get so be able to stand in front of the building, have a plan or section and a section in front of them so that they have a reference. And I guess that is also part of research to, you know, you need to read into the building before you make the call in some way. So yes, the research and thinking, oh, what, what would be a nice time to see this building? Sometimes you, you do need a certain experience to go, yeah, okay, that basis west. So I really want to see this facade. I want to, I'm curious about how this light will come in at the time of the day when you plan accordingly. Mm. And I guess that's, that's another really important point is that so much of what architects produce and what the original architects produced will probably be covered up by the building surfaces and, you know, some extremely clever detailing sometimes, you know, it would be, it's, it's really great as an education to see the details that, that hide certain things so that, that improve the buildings. You know, there's definitely some details that hide stunning lighting that's often very carefully concealed. So that must be a really great way to show people the things that they can't see along the way. Yes, definitely. I guess when you are a solo traveller or you know, a smaller group, you can get away with a lot more. You can sort of bash your way through and just pretend you don't know. And then you go, oh, what's this? Oh, just keep opening doors until you get kicked out of somewhere. <laughs> it's a bit harder now that I'm doing, I'm trying to take people along. So when you've got a larger group, you can't get away with these things. But it's a bit of a sort of rule, you know, in, in architecture travel, you know, unless unless you get kicked out and just get yelled at, yeah, you can, you know, with respect, go as far as you can before you, before you get kicked out and just go, oh, yeah, oh, so what? I, I didn't understand. <laughs> Maybe that shouldn't have said that. No, no, that's all right. <laughs> all of these tours sound absolutely incredible. I mean, I wish I, I wish that they were available when, when I was at, at uni, but, I mean, I can still do them now, I assume. What what has it meant for some of your students, people who are current students and people who are graduates who've gone on on your, on your tours? Have you got any examples of, you know, what sort of revelations people had when they were able to visit these buildings in person? I don't know. You need to ask them, actually. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Some of them actually still going, guys who've been on all the different tours and still coming back and for more. I don't know. I don't know for them. 
I know for me. Yeah. So they don't sort of share share they, their experiences with you. They they do, but you know, it's when they were there. I guess that I guess we haven't really talked about the what what they what the reflections are further along than just when they're there. When they're there, yes, they they love it. And and when they're sort of learning to see architecture, do they have that? Do they have those moments where they have sort of have an aha moment in particular buildings? I think so. They definitely have aha moments. Everyone's different, and that's part of that top five conversation, and sometimes top ten, depending on how, how big the tour is. Yeah, I think the aha moments comes in the reflection time when we have conversation. They have definitely aha when they're there, but because we see so many things, uh, but it's actively forcing them to have a conversation about it, that's when a lot of it comes out. Because otherwise, like, oh, I've seen that, I just saw that, I saw that. But actively reflecting on it and having comparison to different things that they have seen that allows for that reflection. And it's really energising. In communicating what they've seen during the day, you know, whether it's over lunch or over a beer at the end of the day, what have you heard back from the people who've been on your tours in terms of what, what they have been going through? On these tours is there a better appreciation of the design intent or the complexity of the buildings that they might not have been able to see just through the pure image i guess architecture hides itself in a lot of rhetoric sometimes and seeing buildings and seeing and experiencing in a real life kind of cuts away from all that clutter and then you know you can actually start to appreciate it in its what it's intended to be rather than just fancy drawing or and the rhetoric that goes with it, it is what it is. Has the building has to speak for itself, and has just the audience is the public, the people visiting it um, or using it. Uh, some of the students and participants have said that they've always felt uncomfortable talking about architecture, but that has allowed them the vehicle to open up and start discussing architecture in a, a critical way, but not in sort of negative way. They can actually be critical about things because they have experienced it uh, and they can actually talk about architecture through having experienced architecture. I think that that's a huge difference. Mm. Well, it must be a pretty big shift in terms of understanding a building on a conceptual level to then having experienced it in person and then really having that immediate appreciation and understanding of that space. Yes. And it's not just the space, it's also understanding, you know, if you know the intent of it and seeing the eventual procurement of the building and, and just appreciating the all the circumstances that, that shaped it or, or misshaped it and just understanding what people had to go through to get to that level and just appreciating some of the thought process behind more than just a big concept and big sort of spatial quality but just seeing all the decisions being made and compromises and all the things that happens. Uh, really, you really start to see that when you're actually standing in front of a building or in a building, more than just uh, you know this concept and this image. Mm. As a teacher, do you also find that then you almost have to use fewer words because everyone can immediately put what you're talking about into into practice, or it, their understanding is just a, is so immediate in comparison to, to being in the classroom where you might have to use so many different methods of explaining or reference images and drawings that things happen a little bit faster? Uh, 
Yes, actually, one thing I'm, I'm a bit known for, for those I've taught, know that I'm Mr. What, Why and How. So that's the critical thinking there that I go back to, okay, what is it they're physically proposing, which is just a composition story, and then why you choose to do that, why did the architect choose to do that, that's the big conversation, and then how did they make that happen. So I boil it down to pretty simple things and cut away all the rhetoric. And you can build on top of that, but these are the sort of the core aspects of critical thinking and communication. And if it does have extra rhetoric on top of it, that's just extra cherry on top. So I tend to, yes, I do tend to keep things simple. And I think, yes, I do think when you do see buildings in real life, it does cut away from a lot of things. You realize the, the circumstances, you understand the context, you understand the site, you understand the culture, you can see it all come together on good buildings, that is. Yeah. When you're right there and you're seeing all of these things coming together after you're able to really effectively explain it, I can understand that some of the people on your tours who might not be architects or architectural students, that they, you know, almost start to have fewer questions or the conversations between the people with a little bit more, who are a little bit further down the, the architectural rabbit hole, start to also get that appreciation at a similar level because they're now getting all that background information and, and the language that you use to explain what makes these buildings what they are. Yeah, because the problem with architecture, I think, for, for lay people, they come on these tours and they start to appreciate architecture and what architects do at a high level. Because I, I have this uh, conjecture. I think if you were to ask people on the streets, name three designers, so name three fashion designers, name three conceptual artists, name three impressionist painters, they can do most of that. You're trying to ask them to name three architects, they will struggle. And I think if they knew a little bit of architecture, they would choose Gaudi, they would choose Frank Lloyd Wright and Frank Geary. And then if you ask an architect, like what are the three most important architects in the last hundred years, uh, they would give you all kinds of answers. So I think there's a huge disconnect between the public perception of what architecture is and what architects see. And I think we need to find better ways to communicate what are the values of architecture more than just these highly published and publicized uh, architects work. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I really liked that you were saying, you know, like there are some people who have done multiple archie marathons with you now, and I've sort of assumed that they're architectural students and graduates. Have you had lay people who've come back multiple times and you've sort of seen them start to compare the architecture that they've seen on different archie marathons? And they're starting to, you know, develop a real taste for the nuance within architecture. Not, not yet. Not late people, not yet. So I only started taking people in 2018. Oh, right. Very fresh. Yeah. No, yes. Uh, did basically four international tours, twice to Spain and twice to China. That was it. And then the pandemic hit. So then we started making YouTube videos and people started knowing what we're talking about. So the brand sort of only started recently, really. In that case, people know me from social media, from my own travels, because that's from all my from my photos. But people were surprised I didn't take anyone until recently. <laughs> so no, I haven't had anyone uh, lay people return yet. It's the answer to your question. But the students and graduates who come back, I think, especially graduates, I think they miss that exhilaration and having left university and realize, you know, this the drudgery of everyday work. 
you tend to head down and, and focus. Sometimes you lose the, the big picture of like, why, why are we doing this? Why, why do we go through this painful process of producing buildings? And again, I used the chef analogy, you know, like you're a chef, you just, you're just busy in the kitchen all the time. Sometimes you just go, I'm going to take a holiday. I'm going to go and go to these, all these different restaurants and experience what it has to offer just to remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing. Mm. And is that something when you've come back from one of your Archie marathons and you've been doing some, even before you started Archie marathon, when you were doing your own tours and you would come back into the classroom and you would be explaining uh, design outcome that an architect achieved overseas. Did that help you, I guess, get across the message to your students so that then if they were sort of wondering what was the purpose of trying the design outcomes that you might have been trying to edge them towards, having actually been there, that sort of helped you? Yes, definitely. I, I take a lot of photos of, I guess, shots that you can't get. And so it is always about with the intention of telling a story about the, the design of the building and extra things. So from the people who are here at the Archimathon studio, but also my ex-students, they know I have like these tens of thousands of photos I just scroll through and get access to quickly and just to show a certain building. Yeah, so I definitely do use precedents um, to explain the design and explain design intent and possibilities because I think traveling also, especially going to different countries, you realize what are the possibilities because it's very hard to design when you don't know what is possible and just go, oh, I didn't think of it that way. And you can see these different things. But also I used to design some houses. <laughs> and yeah, you, even for myself, I get pretty uh, tired the process and now every few years I go on a a grand tour myself and just to remind myself and that's what happens it has in the past I remember coming back from spain and portugal especially from portugal i started like using tiles on the walls the level that you can just lean up against like places in portugal so it does definitely bleed through yeah that's fantastic and i think that's that's anyone everyone really you look at uh, all the other architects say alto going to italy and you know <laughs> that's that's inspiration for his work mm. And do you want to tell us a little bit about how the Archie Marathon Studio operates? I mean, it sounds like you've got uh, students who come into the studio and you present work and you're sort of right next door to Austin Manhattan Architects and there's a really wonderful collaboration that you have going on there. Do you want to tell us about what you're fostering within within the actual Archie Marathon Studio? In Victoria, I think the last 20 years, architecture studio culture within universities are gone. They're slowly dying and I think within the last few years are completely gone. And I think a lot of students don't understand what it means to be working in the collaborative environment in the studio. Yeah, what was that like when you were coming up through architecture design studios? Well, just like the United States and um, in, in, in Europe as well, studio is basically where you live <laughs> away from home and you know, you spend most of the time there and you work with your colleagues in your own space, you know, shared, and then you can have conversation about uh, anything and everything. I moved to Melbourne because Sydney Uni did not have lock-up studios, even though you spend 24 hours, seven there pretty much sometimes. <laughs> I moved to Melbourne because it had studio, had lock-up studio culture back then. But yeah, I think it's a fundamental problem nowadays that students are working more and more alone and again, missing that social engineering that I talked about at the very start, the communication between each other and helping each other, uh, because that's that's all part of important aspects of 
employment. You know, most offices have got more than one person. So you, you need to communicate. You need to be able to, you know, work effectively as a team. And so these, some of these soft skills are something that I'm trying to bring back. Uh, and that's what the studio is about, is trying to give a studio space, but also, you know, leveraging on the fact that Andrew and I are a lot more experienced <laughs> instead of just being, hey, here's a space students work. We're trying to teach them and expose them to how how you would work strategically if it's a practice. You know, how would you work strategically on some of the things you're working on so you don't waste time and understand everything is just a tool. There's a time is a huge factor and understanding how to work effectively. And having exposure to Austin Main Architects office, they would sometimes go on site visits, they would sometimes just see a design session in, in the space. So everyone can chime in and and they have uh, lunch and learn sessions where they, someone will present a, a certain topic. And again, it's just this exposure and teaching them, again, not just the skills of architecture, but all the soft skills that should be taught at university or somehow learned by osmosis in a studio environment or a work environment, but more. So that's that's how or why we started uh, studio. And this is kind of how it works. It's just a space for them to, to pay to be here as part of a... <laughs> Lessons from the co-working spaces I worked at, and but also something specifically targeted to architecture and being able to have that conversation in architecture, being able to invite friends and architects to come in for drinks so that they can also meet them and have drinks and have conversations and learn. Just like as I said at the very very start, you know, having that access to go to a pub and have have conversation with someone about architecture who's more experienced. That's all part of the learning. That's all part of experience. Absolutely, because I guess that is that is the thing between you know being a beginner architect and, and someone who's who's been in the profession, and even for clients approaching architects, it can feel very opaque in terms of being able to start an architectural conversation. So the idea of giving people a space where they can feel safe and and ask questions uh, as when they want to, it's a really fantastic way to learn and also just to break down inhibitions about having those wonderful architecture conversations uh, late into the night. But it's not necessarily just architecture conversations because architects have, good architects have this amazing breadth of knowledge. When When does an architecture conversation start and stop? You know, you kind of talk about anything and everything and somehow architecture bleeds back into it at some point. So it's it's not limited to that. I think it is just providing the, the environment and having the, the resources and interested people. I think that's where it starts. That's all it needs, really. Absolutely. So I guess coming full circle now back to, you know, going on these Archie marathons and being an amazing teacher and, and having an amazing teacher in, in tone as well. What do you think the big takeaway is of going on on tours either around Australia or overseas to visit these buildings in person? What what do you think is you know fundamental to actually going through that experience that uh, you might not be able to get through the screen or, or through through a book or magazine? So this is kind of the motto that I explain to people uh, to people what this is about so in everything I do people learn 10% of what they read 20% of what they hear and 30% of what they see 50% of what they see and hear and then it gets more interesting you learn 70% of what is discussed with others and hence the studio hence the conversation hence some of the online 
service that I've run, like Discord, and 80% of what you experience, that is travel, and 95% what you teach to others, which is why I teach. It's all actually for myself and YouTube and other things. So yeah, it, I think if you just uh, if just read and hear and even if you see and hear through YouTube, you're still only at the lower percentage of learning as opposed to a higher level of learning, which is self-experience. As I said, traveling and uh, experiencing is a very high level of education. But if you really think about design education in architecture, by the time you leave university, that's when it stops. But really in the profession, you, you're not really taught any further. And I think there's only, I would say maybe 30, 40% of the profession who are people who still continue traveling and still interested in learning. And they tend to be usually in the upper echelon of the profession who, or in, in practices where they still are interested in that continuing learning in the design aspect and to go and see buildings and go and experience because that is the high level of education that you can get uh, whereas you know if you just treat it like a job and all you're interested in is just a, the job as a job i think you don't really develop you know architecture is a lifelong education process i think mm. and seeing those masters as well that's that's also another thing entirely considering australia's such a young architecturally young country in terms of you know its western influences i think it's important as professionals to continue learning and, and definitely seek out things that you know you can learn architecture from architecture from the masters and from various masters you know rcr architectures worked 10 years before they got to pritzker just discovering their work was quite quite delightful. Mm, mm. All right, Kevin. Well, I think that's a really lovely note to end this on. I think it's absolutely fabulous what you're doing with Archie Marathon, and I think you know any student who can get a space in the Archie Marathon student would get something really incredible out of being in that space and having access to what the real day to day life of architecture and, and being an architect is like. Yeah, when are you coming oh, around? I'll have to come in very soon because, um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be there and actually experience some of these presentations from Austin Maynard and yourself. And I also love the the big board that you have where you can shine up a drawing of what you're working on and then, and then draw over the top of that. I think that seems really effective as well. So do you want to tell us a little bit about all the channels that people can reach you on? Because you mentioned your Discord before. I mean, it seems like you've also got a few other, other channels that people can, can see what you're up to. Yes, uh, well, the, the main one that Andrew and I started start of the pandemic was the YouTube channel. So if you Google Archimarath on YouTube, you'll find a lot of stuff about buildings we've visited and we talked about, mostly in Melbourne. Uh, hopefully we'll do some in Finland in our tour and also things on education, uh, issues on education and profession. And uh, what are the other channels? I've got Instagram, TikTok, which has started. Um, short form, bite-sized things that is not lip-syncing. Yep. <laughs> no dances. <laughs> and dancing, no, no. Have you got a Patreon? Uh, yes, we do have Patreon. Um, so if you want to support what we do, yes, please uh, hit up the, the Patreon. Fantastic. Brilliant. All right. Well, anyone who's yeah, interested in, in finding out more about Archie Marathon, they should definitely look into that after we finish this podcast episode. So... Once again, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me and, yeah, we wish you all the best. Thank you, Daniel. 
This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to our guest in this episode, Kevin Huey. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with Archie Marathon and for teaching all of your amazing students to learn to see architecture and see to learn architecture. If you'd like to see what Kevin is planning next, you can visit his website archimarathon.com and Archimarathon on pretty much every social media platform. Our sponsor Brickworks also produced podcasts by architecture fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. If you'd like to hear from some more amazing architects, you can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Kimberly Huey, Hilary Duff, and Max Legal White. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillowfort Audio Productions, written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.